All right, all right. What's up, guys? Yeah, what's up? Welcome to Salt Company. How we doing? Hey, it's been a while. It's been like, oh, it's been two weeks. It's great to see you. Great to see you. Glad you made it. Guys, this is second to last one of the semester. How crazy. How crazy. Here's what we're up to tonight. We're wrapping up the series Dangerously Close. I, I've loved it. It's been a, a hoot and a half, you know, looking at stories of God coming really close. And we're going to wrap it up. We're going to talk about Mary tonight. Uh, and if you've got a Bible, you can go to Luke chapter one. That's where we'll be. But in the meantime, I, uh, I wanted to ask you something. Have you ever, obviously we were talking about Secret Santa uh, and somebody I heard brought it up. White elephant, okay? A white elephant gift exchange. Slightly different than a secret Santa, of course. Do you know the origin of white elephant? Do you know really what it's all about? I didn't, so I looked it up. Okay, here's what I found out. The origin of white elephant gift exchange comes from these kings that were in Southeast Asia, okay? And these kings that had a literal white elephant, these white elephants were a symbol of status, okay? It, it lets you know that they were a profitable king. They had everything they needed. And what they would do is actually they would gift a white elephant to people that they weren't necessarily a fan of. Interesting. Why? Because the cost of actually upkeeping this white elephant, the cost of maintaining this gift, far surpassed the actual gift itself. It far surpassed its value to the person. So it was kind of like, it was kind of a, a game, you know, like they gave, they gifted it to somebody that they, they knew would hate it. Okay. And then now here in the West, modern day America, we love doing white elephant gift exchange when we just like scrap, scrounge around and get something from the house that's like trash and then give it to somebody else and we have a good laugh, right? It's proof that one man's trash is just another person's trash, you know, honestly. Okay, I actually, uh, I have a memory from last year. Me and my cousins, we did a little white elephant gift exchange. And the most iconic gift that was brought, get this, a Jack's Pizza. Somebody just like, one of my cousins just grabbed a frozen Jack's Pizza and wrapped it up. This thing was like chilling not chilling, thawing underneath like the Christmas tree for hours. So like by the time we actually opened it, it was already like soft and gross. Okay, it was the most iconic white elephant gift. That one may have uh, an exception that it actually did have some value. You know, everybody loves Jack's pizza, you know, great value. But on the whole, a white elephant gift, its cost to the, to the recipient far, it's, it's way out of proportion to its usefulness to the person, right? Okay, tonight we're looking at a story. We're looking at a girl named Mary, okay? You might know the story of Mary. She's the one that would actually give birth to Jesus, okay? And she's going to sing a song for us, the first Christmas carol, if you will, okay? But through this song, we're going to see a true white elephant, a gift a thing that its cost far exceeded its, youth, its usefulness. Are you with me? A white elephant, okay? We're gonna see a white elephant, but in order to get there, we're gonna look at this song that Mary sings and we'll see Mary's humble state, we'll see her blessing, and we'll see Mary's focus in the song. 
So if you've got a Bible, let's, let's open it up. Yeah, let's open it up to Luke chapter 1. Luke is a book uh, in the New Testament, and it's basically just a biography. Luke is a biography of the life of Jesus written by a guy named Luke, and it's, it's unpacking his life. So let's look, starting in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. This is what it says. This is how Mary's song begins. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. This is Mary's humble state. Here's the first thing that we learn about her. She was ordinary. She says it herself, that God looked upon her in her humble state, meaning unimpressive. Humble meaning unimpressive. She describes her situation as quite ordinary. Now, we're in verse 46. If you were to zoom back a little bit, you would get the perspective of why is she singing in the first place? Why is she singing and why does she say that her position is unimpressive? So I actually want to zoom back a little bit, look at verse 26, and we'll see what is causing Mary to sing this song. Verse 26 says this, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So here's what we know, here's what we know that Mary was ordinary. We learn that she was engaged to be married, betrothed to a man named Joseph, okay? But at this point, she was a virgin. She hadn't gotten with Joseph yet. She hasn't been married yet. And she was a resident of Nazareth, okay? Nazareth, I don't know if you knew this, it's just kind of like this hick town in the middle of nowhere, Middle East, okay? Engaged to a man, a, re a resident of a hick town, and we find out that she was actually quite poor. How do we know this? Later in Luke chapter two, it'll show Mary going with Joseph to a temple, and you know, custom was when you'd show up to the temple, you would, you would give an offering. Mary and Joseph gave the lowest option offering, the lowest one for the people that didn't have anything to give virtually at all. So Mary and Joseph were poor. All they could give were two little doves. She was a nobody. Mary, socially, was a nobody in the middle of nowhere. And yet here, we see an angel of the Lord appearing to her with crazy news. Stuff that's going to change her life forever. Look at what it says. We're going to keep going in verse 28. And he, as in the angel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his, of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is Bonkers news for a nobody, especially. Think about the position that she was in and what she might have been feeling as she heard this news. 
a nobody in the middle of nowhere, and yet the angel comes to her and says, you are actually going to be the one that's going to carry the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Yikes. Here's also what was, gonna go, what was going through Mary's mind. That this, surely, is actually going to ruin my life. Mary was betrothed to be married to Joseph, but was not yet married. She was a virgin. And the angel is saying, you're going to give birth to a child before you've been married. Here's what would happen in that context if this were to happen. She would be a complete social outcast. That if this were to come true, and if she were to actually go through with this, that this would cause family conflict for sure. This would bring shame upon her name and her, and her husband Joseph. And her son would certainly always be remembered as a bastard child. This was not an exciting moment. This was not a moment in Mary's life that was filled with hope. This is what I've been waiting for. No, not at all. This was certainly going to ruin her life. A moment filled with fear and despair. According to Mary's perspective, it would honestly seem like this task ahead of her felt kind of like a white elephant, where its cost would far outweigh its usefulness to her. Does that make sense? That she, she was so unexcited about this news because she knew what it would cost her. Here's what I'm wondering tonight. If we are coming into this place, I don't know where all of us are at in wanting to follow Jesus, in, in believing the gospel, in wanting to live a life chasing after the Lord, but I think that some of us have this same view that Mary did of having Jesus be at the center of her life, that it kind of feels like a white elephant where its cost far outweighs its value to us. Is that how we're coming in tonight, thinking about putting Jesus at the center? Because here's, here's the reality. If we do put Jesus at the center of our life, it does cost something. Perhaps it's going to make us have to say no to things that we haven't said no to before. Perhaps it's going to actually cause our friends to look at us differently than they ever have. Perhaps it's going to cause family conflict. For all of us, following Jesus actually does have a cost. And I'm just wondering if some of our perspectives is if it's like a white elephant gift where the cost seems like it's way out of proportion to its value to us. This is the, this is the position that Mary found herself in. But what we'll see in Mary's next steps is scared as she was, nervous as she was, counting the cost, she would just have simple faith in believing the words of God. Reluctant as she may have been, she would have simple faith to believe, my God is good. If this is what he has spoken, I can trust him. And so tonight, wherever you're at, the invitation is to count the cost and say, following Jesus and putting him at the center actually does cost me something. But I'm going to have simple trust to believe a good God would have something great on the other side, something worth it.
And that's what we're going to see with Mary. As she keeps singing, she's going to sing about a blessing. Mary's blessing. Let's look again at her song, starting again in verse 46. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. When Mary first received the news that she was going to give birth to Jesus, she was frightened. But over time, this is several verses later and even several days later, stuff is beginning to click. And she's realizing that the baby that she will deliver will indeed be the savior of the world. And this is what she then cries out. She's saying that she's going to be blessed from generation to generation because God has done great things for her. Okay, why is Mary blessed? Plain and simple, the baby is the blessing, right? The reason that Mary is blessed is because of the baby. Earlier in the chapter when Mary had that encounter with the angel, I want to go back there once again where he tells her that she's going to give birth to Jesus. This is, what, this is how Mary initially responds in verse 34. She says, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel asked her, answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Mary is putting it together. All the pieces are starting to be put together that the child that Mary will give birth to will be holy. The only one of his kind. The son of God. Blameless, spotless, beautiful, without sin. That's the baby. And he is the blessing. The reason that Mary is saying, I will be blessed from generation to generation is because she will get to know intimately the Son of God, the King of Kings, whose throne will be of no end. Jesus will be born of a woman, but like it said, that the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary. He will be born where his Father is actually God. He will be fully God and fully man. Guys, this is a mystery. Is that not weird? I mean, is that not weird? That's crazy. Fully God, fully man. That's crazy, but it's exciting because he will be the blessing for Mary and for you and me. You know, for a long time, the mystery of Mary, an ordinary woman, giving birth to the Holy Son of God. This has tripped a lot of people up and actually tempted a lot of people to believe maybe was there something actually really special about Mary herself? It's caused people to wonder, okay, if Jesus would be holy without sin himself, does that mean that actually Mary herself would also have to be without sin? Would Mary have to be holy in herself? Would Mary have to be, in a sense, almost divine? 
It's even tempted people to believe that maybe we should praise her, worship her, pray to her, that she is holy. Okay, this is part of the Roman Catholic Church's teaching on the divinity of Mary. But interestingly, this is nowhere to be found in the Bible. When we look at Mary's own words, this is what's happening. She is magnifying the Lord. Look again at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in who? God, my Savior. Here's who she's magnifying the Lord. Who is the Lord? Jesus. She is magnifying the child that she will give birth to. This is crazy stuff, I know. What does Jesus save us from? Sin. If she is rejoicing in God, my Savior, then she is rejoicing in someone who has saved her from her sin. Therefore, Mary cannot be sinless. Just like us, Mary was a sinner saved by grace. Saved by the completed work of Jesus on the cross. And the assumption that somehow she would be free of sin is not what we see in the Bible. If she's rejoicing in a Savior, it's because she's rejoicing in that she's been saved from something. Jesus says later to confirm this reality in Luke chapter 5, when he's doing his thing and going around informing people of what he's up to and healing the sick and raising the dead. This is what he says. Jesus answered the crowd saying, those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here's the simple reality of what Jesus came to do. He came to save sinners. And Mary is not made up of different stuff than we are. She's made up of the same stuff. She's a sinner who needs saving, and the one who can save her is Jesus. Okay. Here's also what's true, is that you and I are the same way. We're in the same boat. But this is why it's good news. Remember the idea of the white elephant. Something where its cost far surpasses its value to us. Here's where we find ourselves. We are the true white elephant. We actually, when we come before God, here's what's true. We don't actually have anything to offer. You and I, like Mary, find ourselves in a humble state. Empty. Needing saving. We don't have anything really that impressive to bring before God and say, hey, will you delight in this? Like, can I bring something to you so that you'd be impressed? We don't have anything that can impress God. And we can't, we don't actually have something inside us that can give something to God that he doesn't already have. In a sense, we are not useful to God. And in order to get us, he would actually have to pay something. The cost that God would have to pay in order to get us far outweighs our usefulness to God. We are like a white elephant to him. But it did not stop him from ultimately paying that price to get us. 
Though we have no usefulness to God, though we don't add any like value that he doesn't already have in and of himself, he wants us badly. And so the reality that Jesus would be sent by God to live this unstained life, to die a gruesome death, and then to be raised from the grave, it proves to us that God would go to any length He would give whatever it took to be with us. Not because we are useful to him, that we can perform for him, not that we can add anything to him, but because he deeply, deeply loves us. We might not be useful for God, but we sure are valuable. We sure are precious to him. So precious that he would send Jesus to live the unstained life, and to die on our behalf. This is the mystery of the gospel. And here's what it presents to us. A very simple invitation to be unimpressive before God. We can be unimpressive, and we can be okay with that. (laughs) This is so opposite of what the world is telling us day in and day out. Don't we need to climb the ladder and put ourselves on top? Be impressive. Prove that we've got value. Our relationship with God is not like that. We have no value. We have no usefulness to add value to his life. But he says, I want you anyway. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let's be like Mary and be unimpressive before him, but magnify his grace. The next thing I want to look at in Mary's song is simply the focus of her song. We're going to read the whole thing now. This starts back in verse 46, goes to verse 55. This is Mary's song. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The focus of Mary's song is the powerful grace of God. At the center of it all, the grand story that Mary is trying to tell here is that God is pursuing humanity in grace. And here's what she lays out for us. Very simple, dynamic reality that if you meet God's grace with humility, he will lift you up. And if you meet God's grace with scoffing, it will tear you down. What she's unpacking here, did you see it? It said that he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
If you meet God's grace with humility, it will lift you up. But if you meet it with scoffing, it'll tear you down. And it's ultimately, it's a matter of the heart. This is what God's grace is all about. That if you think that you are put together perfectly by yourself, then you will become scattered to pieces by God's grace. But if you believe yourself to be scattered in a million pieces in need of restoration, God will make you whole again by his grace. This is what always happens with the gospel message. It always uplifts the poor and those that are at the bottom, and it always brings down those that are at the top. It evens us out, doesn't it? Because what it reveals is that at our core, there are not good people and bad people. There are only bad people who think that they're good and bad people who know that they're bad. And so those that think that they are good in and of themselves, when they meet the grace of God, it totally shatters them. And when, you, when God's grace meets people who know that they need help, that feel shattered in a million pieces and need him to put them back together, he will. One of the craziest realities of the gospel message that when you look in history and when you look at present, the people that responded to and heard the gospel first were the poor people because they loved it. Finally, there was somebody that was actually going to uplift them. And those that were in the middle class and the upper class, it would tear them down and they would meet it with scoffing. I don't need that message. I'm good on my own. Think about this. I've loved, I've loved this illustration that I've heard in the past that God's grace is like the wind. Think of the wind in a powerful gust for a sailor that is experienced. It is a dream come true when a powerful gust comes for an experienced sailor. But if it were come to an, an amateur one who doesn't know how to operate the ship, it's the worst nightmare. It's the same message. It's the same powerful gust. But for the one who knows how to put up his sail, the powerful gust will fill the mass and it will take the ship onto adventures that he's never been prepared for. See beautiful sights. And your boat will glide across the sea. But that same powerful gust, if not met the right way, will drown your ship or perhaps throw it into the rocks. This is what the powerful grace of God is like. The wind is blowing. How will you receive God's grace? With humility or with scoffing? We all need to be picked up and restored by God. We all need grace. But here is the great reality that we find ourselves in tonight. That like Mary, if you find yourself weak and unimpressive, then there's great news. The gospel is not be good and God will love you. It's not even be good and God will use you. The gospel is like Mary. We can admit that we're at the bottom. Like Mary, we can admit that we are unimpressive. 
And yet God will fully know this and still choose to use you, still choose to be with you, still choose to love you. He'll live with you, he'll get rid of your sin, and he will live and give you eternal life. It's totally backwards. It doesn't really make sense, but it's the greatest thing in the world. He's not looking to be impressed. He's just looking to be trusted. This is the grace of God as we see it revealed in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this really mysterious and beautiful reality that you were born, that you lived a life on this earth, that you died and that you rose again, and all of that to prove that you would go to whatever length it took to live with us, God, to be with us, to pay for our sin and the ways that we've wronged you, and to show that you want to relate to us. God, thank you that we don't need to be impressive towards you, but we can be unimpressive and be okay with that and know that you, you love us anyway. I don't know the ways that people in this room are trying to be impressive towards you. I don't know if it's through Bible reading and church attendance. I don't know if it's through a perfect moral record or if it's through staying away from certain sins so that hopefully you'd look at them with with love, but God, would you just help us admit, admit that we're unimpressive? Would we be able to come before you boldly and believe that the reason you want life with us is not because we are awesome, but because you simply love us? Sometimes it's these really simple truths that are the most difficult to really get in our bones, but Father, I pray that you would make it a reality for us in this room tonight. And God, I pray that because of that reality, which will be true in our hearts tonight, that you would receive praise. Would you prompt us to worship? Would we, like Mary, sing songs and and magnify you with our words? God, you are worthy of praise. You're beautiful and you're here. You're close. We love this about you, God. Pray this in your name. Amen.